verse 6 of chapter 9. Uh, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, you know, Christmas, our uh, answer gives us, as we were thinking earlier, uh, wonderful opportunities to uh, be out in the public square and to proclaim the Christian message. There is an openness uh, because society at large uh, has uh, this theme uh, in its mind. Uh, there is a sense that this is a time of significance and mystery. But at the same time that we have these opportunities, it also comes fraught with different dangers. Uh, In some minds, Santa gets mixed up with God. And so uh, the character of God gets morphed into someone uh, who is uh, elderly and indulgent and who simply wants people to enjoy themselves. And as for the Son of God, well, he becomes... uh, fixed in the manger, the cute baby that never cries. And the, the message of God, the incarnation, becomes submerged in the idea that Jesus is like us. He's, God has come near us. And the, the whole Christian message can become a humanitarian message. God uh, coming to, to benefit the progress of the human race. And therefore, we need to come to the Bible for that balance that the Bible gives to us. And we have uh, a really beautiful instance of the the balance of of Scripture in Isaiah 9. The son who is born and the child who is given is the one who will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So we have these two sides, the the, the child who is born, the son who is given. God's way of salvation is counterintuitive. It's not the way we would have thought it would have come about. Uh, Rather than God sending a general uh, to lead a marching army or a politician or a great teacher, the solution to political turmoil and spiritual darkness is the birth to a virgin of a son. God confounds the wisdom of of the world. When we looked at Ahaz, we saw how the, the, the message of God to trust uh, is rejected by a worldly wise politician uh, who thinks he can fall back on human strategies, military alliances. God's coming into the world uh, in the manger uh, shows us the, the emptiness and the futility of all such uh, options. We can talk about the great human project, we can talk about enlightenment and progress, but uh, all will come to nothing. Uh, The only way of safety, the only way to be saved, the only way to have salvation in its deepest sense comes in the giving of a little child. And it's a salvation that is received by those who will become like little children. Uh, And this group of people are, by and large, the the poor and the weak, rather than the sophisticated and the powerful. But the celebration of a child from God uh, 
could fall so short of the Christian message if Jesus was no more than a special human individual. And many liberal types or or complete secularists like to think of Jesus as just that. So Jesus is an inspirational figure. And he can be put on the shelf along with Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King, uh, maybe the Muhammad, and so on. A great figure. Uh, and we can ignore the, the claims uh, of Christians that he, is to, that he is God. But salvation, uh, in its fullest sense, needs more than an inspirational human figure. We are people who have to cope with health failure, depression, with suffering, moral failure, relational breakdown, disappointments, and ultimately, and most importantly, the damning verdict on our sin. We will be separated from God eternally. And we need a deliverer who is great enough to meet our need. And so lest we get sentimental about the child Isaiah tells us about his four names. Of course, names, as we know in the Bible, are different from uh, the way that we choose and give names. We choose names like uh, we name our children after uh, footballers or film stars or after uh, grandparents and so on. But in the Bible, names are full of significance and and so is the case with the fourfold name given uh, to this son who is given. And we're going to look at uh, two uh, this evening. Mighty God, Everlasting Father. We're going to take them uh, each in uh, their two constituent parts as we consider them. The child who will be born is God. He's God. Let that just... Hit you, let take some time to to take it in. This is God in the manger. He is God. Now, if we had been present, if you were uh, a midwife, a midwife uh, at the birth itself, or someone who happened in at the time of birth, everything would have been as expected. Mary would have called out in pain. The very fact that she cried uh, in the night was a reminder of the, the curse of the fall and the, the, the overflow of our, our, our condition of, of sin and misery as a result of rebellion. The baby enlarged his lungs and he cried too. There would have been a call for, for water and for towels because his entry into the world would have been as always, a bloody entry. This, to all outward appearances, was a normal birth and a normal baby, except this was a very extraordinary baby. This child was different. Uh, in the language of the ancient creeds, we confess him as of one substance with God of the same essence, the same essential nature as God. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, became what he had 
not been before. A human, without ceasing to be what he had been eternally, divine, the true God. And this is truth that we receive by faith because the scriptures declare it and declare it very clearly. And it is a truth that is fiercely under attack. Uh, it's in, under attack by liberal scholars within the, the, uh, the, the visible church, uh, under attack by those who uh, want to attack the church from the outside, and it's under attack as it has never been before. Why is this so? Because the consequences are enormous. Because if Jesus is God, then we must worship him. We're obliged to fall down and adore him and give him the worship that is due to God. And if he's not God, then it would be blasphemous. It would be idolatry to worship him. If he's not God, he's just another hero. He's got no unique claim on you. And therefore, you can see why so many people are eager to strip Jesus of his divinity because then they are freed up to do as they please and to have him on that shelf with the other heroes and to make their discriminatory comments about him. Now, a key question is this. Does the New Testament teach that Jesus is God? If you ever read, and I hope you don't, if you ever read any of these uh, trashy uh, uh, authors who who come up with the the clever, clever idea that uh, so much of Christianity is simply uh, the product of later years of the church uh, and has been made up in order that uh, the powerful institution of the church could manipulate people. This idea that uh, the truth is, uh, uh, there's no such thing as truth, but people use uh, uh, things to manipulate others. And you see that in in lots of books. Uh, So is that the case? Or is it rather the case that we can go to the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament and find that the New Testament itself claims divinity for Jesus? Well, the evidence from the New Testament and from its earliest documents is the confession that Jesus is God and the worship of Jesus is a key element of Christian faith from the beginning. Some of the, the documents that we, that we have uh, outside the Bible describe uh, the Christian community as coming together uh, on Sunday to sing a hymn to Jesus and to worship him as God. But within the New Testament itself, uh, we have so much evidence for the fact that Jesus is God that it almost becomes a silly exercise uh, to instance them. But there are some key verses which actually say that Jesus or the Word is God. And of course, these are the ones that have had all the, the artillery of seculars trained against it. Uh, John 1, John chapter 1, 1 and 2 the Word was with God and the Word was God. And, and the Word is clearly Jesus, the Son, because it goes on uh, to, to, to make that clear. And uh, if you point a Jehovah's Witness to that verse, they will, uh, their kind of stock response is that there's no article uh, before uh, theos or God, and therefore their uh, new century version of the, of the New Testament translates it as the word was a God. 
And the next time you speak to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you want to impress them with your, your uh, knowledge of, uh, of the New Testament in Greek and remind them of Colville's rule. <laughs> Colville's rule, which uh, is a standard grammatical rule, which, which says that when the, 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 uh, the, the order of words is in this case, then the, the predicate or the, the, the second part of the sentence is always in a definite uh, case. And so the, uh, the, the Christian versions uh, are the only version of this which is grammatically correct. The word was God, not a God. Then there's Romans 9 verse 5 where Paul is discussing the privileges of the Jews. And Paul writes, theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Now, again, uh, this is a verse that the Jehovah's Witnesses home in on, and how they doctor this verse is uh, by uh, putting uh, a full stop <coughs> after Christ, and they make the end of the sentence into a doxology. Well, uh, there is always debate because there are no punctuation marks in the original Greek and therefore uh, you could argue that except for the fact when you look at every other doxology uh, in the Bible, the word blessed is always at the front. Blessed be God and so on. And it's not in this case. And so the idea of this being a doxology to God uh, and Christ not being uh, affirmed as God uh, simply falls apart. And then the weakest uh, attempt of all to, to try to undermine a claim uh, of Jesus being God is Hebrews eight eighteen, uh, where there's a quotation uh, from the, the Psalms. The writer says, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And again, uh, some try to say, Well, it's not... Uh, and addressing the Son as God, your throne, O God. But rather, uh, what it's saying is, God is your throne, rather than your throne, O God. Which really doesn't make a lot of sense, and is quite clearly an effort to avoid the point that the writer is making, that the Son, because he is God, has an everlasting throne. So these are three verses where... Jesus is uh, explicitly uh, said to be God. However, much more convincing is the way that the New Testament uh, simply assumes that Jesus is God. Doesn't feel constrained to prove it, to spell it out, to underline it, to use a red marker or a highlighter. Assumes that Jesus is God. And uh, I think it's important that we... We're, we're familiar with some of these ways in which the divinity of Christ is assumed. Jesus has given titles of divinity. Uh, Jesus is called Lord. Right? Now that's, that's a key title. Uh, Yahweh is Lord. And Jesus has given the title Lord. And even more interestingly, there's the use of the Son of Man. 
Uh, now, you might think that when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that he's denying that he's God. He's using a term that seems different from the Son of God. But Jesus used that expression for himself uh, because it served two purposes. Uh, on the one hand, it, uh, it, it, didn't, it didn't act as a flashpoint, uh, which would have had the Pharisees on top of him before the time had come. <coughs> and on the other hand, it could be seen by all those who had eyes to see that he was claiming to be God. Because the title comes from Daniel chapter 7. And the, the one who comes on the clouds is described as the Son of Man. Here is the Ancient of Days. Here is the Eternal Messiah coming on the clouds uh, with all glory. Jesus uh, is not only given titles which belong to God. He said to do things which only God does. He's described as the creator in uh, Colossians. He is the Lord who sustains all of his creation. Uh, he is the judge of the earth. These are activities that only God does. This is an, uh, an unselfconscious uh, claim that Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus uh, is said to be eternal. He claims before Abraham was, I am. Revelation speaks of him as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now these aren't the descriptions of a gifted man. These are descriptions of uh, one who is God. He does things that only God can do. Uh, he is God over creation. And therefore, when he stills the storm, he is declaring his Godhead. Uh, the Psalms refer to God as the God who stills the raging seas. He's the God who casts out demons. He heals sickness. He raises the dead. <clears throat> but also Jesus accepts some of the, the, the rights that only God has. Uh, he accepts uh, worship which is given to him. Uh, it would be blasphemous for Jesus to have done that unless he claimed to be and was God. Uh, he forgives sins. Now, uh, in his confrontations with the Pharisees, they accuse him of blasphemy when he uh, forgives the, uh, the, the paralyzed man brought to, to, brought to him. And of course, at one level, they are right because only God can forgive sin. Uh, Jesus uh, is making a claim to being God in the context of forgiving sins. This child is God. And the only question, the question is not, does the New Testament make the claim? Of course the New Testament makes the claim on almost every page. The question is, do we accept Jesus as God? Do we receive him as God? But he's described as the mighty God. He is the mighty God uh, in this title. Uh, and the word in the original is used to describe a hero, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, in fact. You could translate it in these terms. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Warrior God. Why did the Son of God become man? Why was Jesus born? 
Christ was born to be your warrior God. Christ was born to fight for you. That's why I think Townend's line in the hymn that we sang is really helpful. You know, it's a lovely line on when uh, he comes to the, the section, Jesus on the cross. He fights for breath. He fights for me. I think that's insightful. Uh, it has, on the one hand, the humanity of Christ, this poignant picture of Jesus fighting for breath, which of course was was the, the whole issue. When you were crucified, uh, you died ultimately because you no longer had the strength to haul yourself up on the nails in order that you might breathe and eventually, uh, in weakness, you were asphyxiated. And so Jesus, in his humanity, is fighting for breath, and yet uh, he is the, the, the mighty warrior, the warrior God who is fighting for me, who is fighting for you on the cross, Wonderful. He is engaged in battle on the cross. Vulnerable in humanity, heading for death itself. And yet because of his deity, Christ, victor over sin and hell. That is the reality of what is going on. This is the the, the smoke and the din of the battle on the cross of Calvary. Jesus, warrior God, is engaged in in smiting our enemy because of his infinite worth as God the penalty that he pays for our sin is sufficient to cover all of the sin of the elect of God that is why Jesus must be God a lesser sacrifice doesn't cover our sin Because Jesus is the eternal God. His value is of infinite value. He pays the price that no one else could. And because he is paying the price on the cross, he is smiting the evil one. He's our warrior God. And brothers and sisters, throughout our life, we will find in Jesus our great protector, our great defender. He comes to our aid because he is the mighty God. Listen to what uh, John Calvin writes uh, regarding this title. He is therefore called the mighty God for the same reason that he was formerly called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7.14. For if we find in Christ nothing but flesh, but the flesh and nature of man, our glorying will be foolish and vain and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. But if he shows himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may now rely on him with safety. Therefore, brothers, sisters, no matter what challenge you are facing, no matter how, how great the relational challenge, no matter what you struggle with, 
no matter how keen you feel your weakness, turn to Jesus. Don't just pay lip service to him, but actually trust him to give you the victory. He is the mighty God. He fights on your behalf with all the resources of the Godhead. Mighty God. And the second title is that the child will be everlasting father. Everlasting father. Now, it might seem to be a bit confusing to refer to the Son of God as the Father. We need to be careful here. Um, Another heresy in the early centuries of the church was a heresy called modalism. And the problem, the the, the challenge of the Trinity was solved, uh, so it was claimed by saying that God appeared at different times as Son and Spirit and Father. But that's not biblical. (laughs) That's not what the Bible teaches. It's a heresy. Whatever else we may say, it wasn't the Father who suffered on the cross. It was the second person of the Godhead who suffered on the cross. So, whatever else Isaiah is saying, he's not confusing the persons of the Trinity. So what does it mean to call the Son Everlasting Father? Well, remember that the titles are titles of a kingly nature. The government should be upon his shoulders. Well, when we remember that, it it helps us to see that the quality of Jesus' kingship of his reign will be fatherly. He will not be a despot. He will not be a tyrant. He will not rule for... uh, his own self-aggrandizement. He will be fatherly. He will be compassionate. We were singing from Psalm 103, as a father has compassion for his children, so God (coughs) has compassion for us. This king will rule with understanding. He is approachable and welcoming. He protects rather than harms those who are in his care. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's a tradition of the, the ideal king being thought of as a shepherd. And the shepherd uh, is ruling his flock. And the, the ideal shepherd is a benevolent shepherd who cares for and protects his flock. He leads them to green pastures. He doesn't desert them. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, he remains with them. There are other ways, though, also by which we can think of Jesus, the Son, being fatherly without confusing him with the first person of the Trinity. It's helpful because the New Testament, Jesus himself says that he reveals the Father. How do we know what the Father is like? Jesus has revealed the Father. When Philip asks Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus in John 14 replies, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, poor Philip. His request is understandable, isn't it? Uh, God is a spirit. No one has seen God. 
So is the quest understandable. <coughs> Jesus is saying that to know him means that uh, we will have a true revelation of God. Not a, a complete understanding, because one of the attributes of God is that he is incomprehensible. You can't comprehend all that God is. But Jesus is saying, Philip, don't be alarmed. There is nothing in God that will take you by surprise. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Archbishop Ramsey uh, had this uh, great quote, God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. It's really good. In other words, there will be no, uh, there's no dark side to God. There will be no surprises that we encounter about God because Jesus has revealed God truly. Just as the Son is merciful and gentle and holy and just, so God the Father is merciful and gentle but is also just and holy. John writes again in his prologue, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So he is the Father. Jesus is the Father. He reveals the Father. But secondly, there's also this truth that there's, there's no clash between the Son and the Father. The Father and the Son are one. Now there's a a misconception sometimes that what the cross is about is uh, about a God the Father being a stickler for the law and an upholder of judgment. And Jesus, on the other hand, is the, the gentle and compassionate one who wants uh, sinners to be forgiven. And so the Father is set against the Son. And Jesus being fatherly, being the everlasting father, is a reminder that there's no, there's no conflict within the Godhead like that. The child who will be the great governor and king will show that they are one in their commitment to save sinners. Jesus is not coerced into being a saviour. I love the father, Jesus says, and do exactly what my father has commanded me. John 14, 31. John 10, I and the Father are one. So Jesus comes with perfect willingness to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that we might not perish, but might have everlasting life. There's a oneness. And then thirdly, uh, Jesus uh, is the everlasting Father in that he brings us uh, into the family of God. We know God as Father because of our adoption. And it's through Jesus that we are adopted. He pays the price of our adoption. Hebrews 2, uh, the writer puts the words of Isaiah in chapter 8, 17 uh, and attributes them to Jesus prophetically. Here am I and the children God has given me. Jesus brings us to the Father. Jesus brings us into the family of God. 
What's Christmas about? It's about Galatians 4.4. 4, when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth his son. He came into the world that first Christmas time. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So that, the point of Christmas, the point of the son coming, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus brings us into that the father's family through adoption. He is the father in all these senses. And he's the everlasting father. We may be close to an earthly father. We may uh, owe a huge debt uh, to a good father. But our earthly fathers pass away. He is the eternal one. He is the alpha and the omega. And he continually seeks our good. Uh, He is continually with us, the everlasting Father. Jesus is the mighty God. Jesus is the everlasting Father. Let's take that that thought with us on this, the last Sunday, before uh, we celebrate in our homes the coming of Christ. The one whose birth we celebrate, yes, uh, he is the child born, the son who's given. But he is the mighty God. He is the, the warrior God who fights for you. He's the warrior God who will fight for you in all of your struggles if you will only trust him. And rely upon him. And he is the God who has brought you near to the Father. Through Christ we have the adoption as sons. You are highly privileged. You have the highest status. You are a child of God. Because of what the Son has done for you. May that reality be our, our blessing. Uh, over these days. Amen.